What's good, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Amitalika TIS podcast here in the wee hours of January the 11th, January the 12th, the year 2022. Uh, recap the national championship game here at the top with the Georgia Bulldogs becoming your 2021 college football D1A national champions by defeating uh, their interconference rival uh, in the in excuse me, in the Alabama Crimson Tide to win themselves their first national championship in 41 years. And it's really a because so much, so much, and I'm sitting up here saying we don't need Week 18. It's a waste of time. We don't need it. Now, I still agree we're better off with 17 weeks and 18 weeks, but I mean, but I mean boy, did Week 18 deliver. There are so many storylines, so many things for me to sink my teeth into with week 18. So what so here's what's going to happen. Special, you know, you get 3 episodes in about a 4-day period, you know, j- just and a lot of it just based on week 18 alone. I will touch on the Steelers and Ravens game, the the Monday night Saturday double headers. Um, get into a little bit of Vic Fangio, Joe Judge, who thank the good Lord got canned on two in the on a Tuesday evening here in the East Coast. I'll get to that in one episode, and there's plenty for me to scream and yell about in part two of the Week 18 recap. Uh, with uh, Brandon Staley and the Chargers collapsing, uh, the Rams and Matthew Stafford and McVay sticking up the joint, and Jimmy G's heroic second half in their loss to the 49ers on Sunday. And how can I be remiss if I didn't bring up uh, Carson Wentz and the Colts absolutely collapsing in Duval against in ja- against the Jacksonville Jaguars on, sun- on Sunday? Get into that, and I also scream and yell and ask the the question that's been uh, a very popular one within the National Football League since uh, Monday morning, and that and that is why on God why on God's green earth was Brand Brandon Brian Flores, the now former coach of the Mi- former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, fired. I will scream and yell about that in part two. Uh, and part two of uh, of this uh, little eight week eighteen recap, so to speak. But here at the top, where we begin is with uh, Monday night's national championship game as the Georgia Bulldogs for the first time in forty one years. You know, sometimes you know, sometimes it's your time. Sometimes you're due, and sometimes you know, when you've suffered as long as Georgia has. Uh, whether it's uh, whether it's losing that 2017-2018 national championship game to uh, to Alabama and over to to uh, Alabama in overtime down at uh, Mercedes-Benz Stadium, whether it's getting ambushed by Alabama back a month ago, the first uh, Saturday of December in the SEC championship game. Whether it, you know whether you're Georgia and have to deal with uh, you know and had to, having to deal with losing to Alabama, especially with uh, Kirby Smart who had not beaten Alabama prior to Monday night, had not beaten Alabama during his entire uh, career, you know, the last uh, five six seasons at. Uh, at University of Georgia, sometimes it's your time. And uh, last night, it surely was the uh, Georgia Bulldogs' time, winning their first national championship since 1980 
uh, by the final score of 33 to 18. This was a game that you know you you saw up until the fourth quarter, both teams playing not to lose. There were not there was not a touchdown scored in this game until the third quarter. So it was so it was in a, it was an essential defensive slugfest for the first for the first half and change of the game on Monday night. But you got a feeling, and Herb Street brought this up during the broadcast on a Monday night how you get how he got how he sensed and had the feeling that both teams were playing you know not to lose were playing uh were playing were playing especially on from the offensive side of the football you know Bryce Young playing not to lose dealing with all the injuries that Alabama had to deal with yesterday and then of course on the Georgia side not uh, have uh, Stetson Bennett lose the game for Georgia as well and basically just let the two and they and those were two great defenses last night going at, going at it for it was a phenomenal defensive battle at least for the first three quarters of the game just have the two defenses go out there and kill each other battle of attrition and uh, battle of attrition, battle war of attrition, whatever you want to use, and go out there and see, you know, who's going to snap, who's going to blank, who's going to crack first. And lo and behold, it ended up being Alabama being the one that cracked first. Georgia went up and took a commanding and took a uh, and had a commanding and had a phenomenal fourth quarter, outscoring Alabama twenty to nine. And Saban said it after the game, you know. You know, we, you know, we, nothing to be ashamed about, you know, nothing to be ashamed about. We had a good season. Canix, I understand, you know, we're Alabama with this, that, but you, we are human. We do lose every now and again. Uh, nothing to be ashamed of. Walk out your heads uh, held with your uh, heads held high. But he said after the game, you know, the, the opportunity and the chances were there. And I, and I had a feeling, you know, prior to when Georgia finally, you know, when the, prior to the switch clicking for Georgia in the fourth quarter, I, I was saying to myself, I said, Alabama's gonna Alabama's gonna pull pull out another national championship out of their ass, aren't they? And Nick Nick Saban gonna get another one, and again it's gonna be Georgia falling short to Alabama again. And then and then lo and behold, then lo and behold, you know that thought kind of swirl that caught that thought, excuse me, kind of swirls into your head. And then all of a sudden, here comes here comes uh, Georgia. You know, after the Alabama uh, after the Alabama blocked field goal, drives down the field, four plays, eighty yards, takes takes less than two minutes off the clock, scored. You know, and end up t- scoring a touchdown. And that block punt right there. Was a was a was a focal point in the game, and when was the turning point? Was the changing of the tides and the momentum in that game? At the point of that blocked at the point of that blocked field goal, Alabama was up a, was up a field goal up up nine to up nine six. Uh, up nine six in the third quarter, had drove it had driven down the field. Young and company seventeen plays went down the field sixty eight yards, and had an opportunity to go up by to go up by six and make it a twelve six Alabama advantage when when the Georgia offense had been inept and stuck in neutral all night long and just a phenomenal job by that by that Georgia defensive special teams field you know field goal squad with the hands team getting their hands up and blocking the ball and uh, keeping Alabama off the scoreboard and starting the Georgia drive at their at their 20 yard line riding on that high of the momentum of the blo- of the block field goal which one of, which was one of the turning points in the game next thing you know Georgia 
four plays, 80 yards, a uh, minute 58 off the clock. It's, thir- it's 13-9. Alabama gets the ball back, kicks his field goal. They get within one, 13-12. Did not have a problem with that whatsoever in a defensive slugfest as it was on Monday night. You don't go chasing points. You know, when, when offense for the first three and a half quarters, you know, came at a premium and no, and, and outside of the, uh, and, and prior to the Georgia touchdown, nobody had scored, nobody had scored, reached Painter yet, had, had uh, scored in the end zone yet. So I had no issue with Saban deciding to kick the field goal and make it a 13-12, out, excuse me, Georgia advantage. And then, and then how about uh, and then how about and then how about Stetson Ben? And this was a play that I and once once this play happened, I was like, uh oh, uh oh, you know, this is going to be a play that we're going to look back on and be like, that was when you know Alabama started started to build up momentum and start to build up their comeback. And I, and if you don't know what I'm talking about in specifically, let me jog your memory. Third and eight. Ball at the at, ball at the Georgia twenty-seven yard line. Ben uh, Bennett gets sacked by Christian Harris, and it looked to me, watching it watching it live, and it looked like watching it to me live in real time that that was a forward pass. I understand that he kind of that he kind of lost control that he lost control of the football a little bit. You know, it was firmly in his hand. And by the time his arm was going forward, he the hit from uh, from Harris kind of like jarred the ball loose out of out of that tight grip he had in his right hand. But you know, to me, it looked like that was a forward pass. His arm was not hit. His arm was in was in a forward throwing motion. He meant to throw the ball. He meant to throw the ball away. You know that 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 that's what that was his obvious intention. And you know the jarring of the hit kind of jars the ball loose a little bit. But in my eyes, in my opinion, I didn't think that that was enough to warrant it being a fumble. Officials disagreed. They went back. They went back and looked at it. Phenomenal play by Alab Brian, who you know Alab Brian Branch, excuse me, who basically you know was thought the play was over, thought it was an incomplete pass, and was just you know, you know, just fooling around, farting around after the play was over, you know, having a little fun, you know, fielding the football off the bounce, head, headed towards the sideline. And you know, and lo and, and lo and behold, they go back and look at it. His foot stays in, stays inbounds by an inch. The ball pops up square into his hand, square into his chest. Maintains possession, going to you know, uh, you know, maintains possession while nonchalantly going out of bounds. Gets the one foot, and then all of a sudden, it's it's not a it's not a inco- it's not an incomplete pass. And if it was, they would have called intentional grounding. On us, on Stetson Bennett, because there was no Georgia wide receiver uh, near. There was no Georgia wide receiver in the area and in the near vicinity of where Bennett was throwing to. But instead, it's a fumble. It's a fumble. Alabama gets the ball back at the. Alabama gets the ball back at Georgia's. 16-yard line, run a, run a four-place 16-yard drive, take 81 seconds off the clock. Alabama takes takes the lead for the first time, and the game goes up 18, goes up 18-13. Georgia's not done. Stetson Bennett gave him phenomenal credit. Uh, give him phenomenal credit. Made a made a brilliant uh, 40-yard pass play to Adane Mitchell with 8:09 in the fourth quarter, uh, and they failed on the two on they failed on the two-point conversion. 
conversion to take the to go up a twenty one eighteen. The with going for two, I had no issues with whatsoever. And, you know, put yourself in a put yourself in a position where you where you get the twenty one points and you have yourself up up a field goal. Uh, as you get deeper and deeper into the game, had no issues with uh, with Smart and company going for two there after the touchdown to take the lead at 19-18. Alabama gets the ball back, three plays, 59 seconds off the clock, lose two yards. They punt the ball back to they punt the ball uh, they punt the ball back to uh, Georgia, who proceeds to go down who proceeds to go down the field, seven plays, 62 yards, 337. Uh, and take the lead again, go up 26-18. This is a drive that Jordan, and then, you know, you fast forward to, Jordan, to excuse me, to Alabama's uh, last meaningful drive for the game. They're down by eight points. Bryce Young, who did a phenomenal job, job leading a, a, a last-second comeback in regulation against Auburn on the road in the Iron Bowl back on Thanksgiving weekend. Did a phenomenal job leading them back a few months prior. Uh, played at, played a... Uh, very brilliantly against Georgia in the SEC championship game. Need to drive down the field, score a touchdown, two-point conversion to tie the game up. I have no idea what you, what Young saw on the play, whether he thought it was a stop and go, an out route miscommunication on on the wide receiver, uh, on the wide receivers and Young's uh, part. Steady throws an interception to Keely Ringo, takes it back to the house 79 yards, and that you know was the coup de grace in Alabama as your national champions for the first time since uh, for the first time since 1980. There was a two point there was a two point conversion that uh, Georgia had. It was uh, it was their I believe it was their first yeah it was their first touchdown of the game. First touchdown first touchdown of the game. They uh, took the lead 18-13 going for two which which I wasn't necessarily in love with but I can't quibble with it because you know you get the two point conversion you're up 2013 you're up a touchdown. The two point conversion after they after the Cameron Latou uh touchdown with 10-14 to go in the fourth. I had no issues with going for two. The thing I couldn't stand and the thing I hated and I and I said it out loud to myself as soon as they lined up to go for the two point conversion is that I I hated the formation. Absolutely hate the formation. One of my biggest Play calling pet peeves in football is when the opposing offense, especially when they're going for two, or, or they're inside the five yard line. One one of those two uh, one of those two uh, situations is when they're inside the five yard line. You know, in in a goal to goal situation or going for two, and they and they call an empty back shotgun. Uh, when and they call an empty back shotgun when seventy five percent of the wide receivers are lined up on one side of the field. I, I I can't especially especially in uh, in college because the hash because the hash marks are wider and you have less space to work with, with all those wide receivers on the same on the same side of the hash mark. I I, I can't I couldn't stand it. Did not like the play call by Bill O'Brien. What's uh, did not like the play call by Bill O'Brien whatsoever. If you are going to call an empty back shotgun formation with those bunch wide receivers, you know that you saw at the bottom of your screen towards uh, towards the near sideline. Have have a couple of wide receivers, you know, run a few crossing routes so, to you know to keep the defense on their toes. So, yes, we're line. Yes, the majority of our wide receivers are lined for one side of the field, but we're going to stretch the field by having a couple guys run a run a couple crossing patterns in the end zone. 
and you know and make your defense work a little bit. See if we can catch him off guard. See if we can you know give Bryce Young a a, a few inches, if not a few feet of separation, and try to score it that way. Instead, the one lone wide receiver they had uh, they had up towards the uh, far part of the sideline was all by his lonesome in the top part of the end zone. And when he was and when he wasn't open, you know the play was not there for Bryce Young. Uh, for it was not a play was not there for to be had for uh, you know for Bryce Young to do anything with with his arm. So I, I did not I did not like the formation. Did not like the play call. Did not mind the decision. Did not mind the decision. I probably would have went for went for two myself. But I can't stand the play call and I can't stand the formation. I, it drives me crazy. It drove me crazy. It, it, same situation in the in the in the Raven Packer game. Uh, when they decided it, now that one was a stupid decision, and the play call slash formation was just as horrendous. You know the, the you know calling a shotgun with uh, with with seventy percent of your receiver active eligible receivers on in on the play are in a bunt or in a or in a tight bunch formation towards the sideline, and all of them are are running a route essentially in in the same vicinity of, of the uh, of of the uh, of the same. Are all running a running their respective routes in the same uh, general vicinity of each other. Did you know? Didn't like it then, and I didn't like the two point conversion. But uh, and the two point con- conversion play that Alabama ran at Bill O'Brien. But uh, c- congratulations to Georgia. Finally got their monkey off the back. First time since 1980. Yours truly's uh, dad was two years of age. Uh, and I'm not making that up. At two years old, last time Georgia won the national championship, had Herschel Walker on their team the whole bit. Congratulations to Kirby Smart, did a phenomenal job. Came across well during. He he's he's very funny. You know this. Is, you know he was funny during the uh, trophy presentation. Talking about you know we're going there's going to be some torn up property in Indianapolis tonight. Um, uh, you know he how you know describing how how the you know how it felt to k- finally kiss the trophy, the 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 vertical the large vertical who says white men can't jump the large vertical he had on the pick six that put the game away under a minute to go in regulation to uh to put the to put the game out of reach for Alabama. I mean he he he's a likable personality. He's funny. He's he's charismatic. He's got he's got that southern he's got that likable, hospitable, uh embraceable southern charm personality that you like. Um but and Stetson, who's a phenomenal story, you know, the Rudy real life version, you know, whose dream at three years of age was to uh, be the court you know, be the quarterback for the Georgia Bulldogs. He goes there, transfers to a junior college and then transfers back, waits his turn, uh waits his turn as a walk on, gets his job, and leads his beloved childhood uh, favorite college football team to their first national championship in 41 years. I mean, just an absolutely phenomenal job and phenomenal story. Uh, Georgia's defensive line was screaming, was absolutely incredible all night long. I mean, and both defenses were just were just absolutely was just absolutely tremendous. Um, was it was just absolutely tremendous. Georgia did a phenomenal job running the ball, ran the ball as a team for 140 yards. Bama could not run the ball, could not run the ball whatsoever. Only ran the ball. 20, 28 attempts. Georgia had 30. Only racked up a combined 30 rushing yards. The Crimson Tide did, averaging one yard a carry. Um, it's just you know it, it was a it was a defensive slugfest. 
But when it mattered the most and when the chips were in the middle of the table and, you know, it was a championship to be won and lost, and, it, you know, it started to get a little antsy. It started, all right, well, who's going to make the play? Who's going to make the decision? Who's going to make the mistake that's going to put that's going to put their team down under? And 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 then on the and on the latter side, who's going to make the play that's going to put their team out in front and lock up or put themselves in a in a better position to win a championship? And Georgia was the team that stepped up. Alabama was undisciplined. Nine penalties. Nine. Pe- or excuse me. They were uh, they were nine of tw- nine. Uh, not talking about the penalties. We're looking at the third down. Georgia was uh, Georgia was not great on third down in any circumstances. Four of twelve. Alabama was nine of twenty. Um, was nine of twenty. Not to mention Alabama turned over the ball twice, and Alabama ruled time of possession thirty one thirty one to uh, Georgia's twenty eight twenty nine. But George did a phenomenal job. Great, you know, good job getting. They did defensive front did an absolutely phenomenal job stopping the run. Uh, they were running, tracking down Bryce Young left and right, giving them all sorts of types of hell. Alabama defense wasn't, you know, up until the fourth quarter was uh, was did their part and was absolutely phenomenal as well. Alabama did miss their uh, Alabama did miss their star wide receiver, which hurt their which hurt them offensively, killed their explosiveness, killed the ex- the explosive weapon that uh, Young and O'Brien and Alabama had in their back pocket. Uh, heading into the game, it also did not help that uh, that Alabama was running on fumes as far as their secondary and their corners were concerned, and Alabama ate up their young freshman uh, ate up their young freshman quarters corners, excuse me, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner all night long in the fourth quarter. But Georgia's your national champions for the first time in 40 years, and the previous three college football D1A national championships. All from the Ace, excuse me, ACC. All from the SEC. Joe Burrow's LSU Tigers, Crimson Tide last year, Georgia Bulldogs, 2021. My hats off and congratulations to them. That team, Kirby Smart, University of Georgia alumni, University of Georgia students, actively you know who are active students there at the school. You know, Ernie Johnson, I know he was pulling for, uh, you know, he's a uh, University of Georgia alum. He, Maria Taylor, all, L. Duncan of ESPN, all were pulling for Georgia hard in this championship game, have experienced many of uh, national championship and, uh, and college football playoff heartbreak. Good to see them finally reach the mountaintop on, uh, on uh, Monday night. And how about Charles Barkley, who went out there and guaranteed a Georgia Bulldog victory on inside the NBA on on Thursday night? Ernie Johnson's going, oh, here we go again. Shucks are jinxing us. Charles Barkley been on fire a little bit with with his predictions. He 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 guaranteed that the Milwaukee Bucks, uh, you know, and he's a he's a he's a former Phoenix Sun. Former Phoenix Sun, he pre- he predicted and guaranteed that the Milwaukee Bucks were going to win the NBA championship back in July. He, you know, when uh, Cody Bellinger and Mookie Betts had that heroic uh, eighth inning comeback against uh, against the against the Braves in the in the NLCS. He he, you know, he went out there on a limb opening night of the NBA season, uh, you know, in LA, uh, in LA at LA Live, and predicted that the uh, that the Atlanta Braves would win the World Series. And now he goes out there and he predicts 
that uh, that the Georgia Bulldogs will uh, w- will win the national cha- you know will win the national championship and beat Bama on Thursday night. Hopefully, hopefully, uh, you know, in due time, Charles Barkley will guarantee a Super Bowl Fifty Six championship for my Cincinnati Bengals. That is where we begin. Busy show today. Lots of Week 18 stuff to get to as far as the pro game is concerned. You're listening to the Amatelica TIS podcast. Don't go, don't go anywhere. Busy program back after this. Welcome back to the Amatelica TIS podcast. Switching gears now from the college game to the pro game. And uh, a matchup I want to discuss with you guys during this uh, multi, uh, multi-faceted Week 18 NFL recap. And we will go and start with the Steelers and Ravens game here first. Um, as the Steelers take care of business, winning, uh, beating their division rival Baltimore, um, and uh, sweeping the season series for the second straight season in a row by the final score of sixteen to thirteen, uh, you know it, it was an intriguing game. In the you know it was an intriguing game. You know where you you know where you couldn't move, your eyes were glued to the TV. It was an intriguing. It was intriguing from that standpoint from the fourth quarter on. It was a messy, sloppy, dare I say boring, and I know, how can you say a a Steelers-Ravens game is boring, but when Lamar Jackson ain't playing, Ben Roethlisberger is hanging on by a thread and what we thought, you know, in the long shot of of Pittsburgh had heading into Sunday of making the playoffs, what we thought was going to be Ben Roethlisberger's last game. We knew for a fact it was going to be his last game against the Ravens and his last game down at the bank at M&T Bank Stadium here in my uh, fair city of Baltimore, but... Um, but it's, you know, I understand it's kind of sacrilegious to say that a Steelers Bengals game or Steelers Bengals, a Steelers Ravens game with playoff implication was boring, but you know, it was the weather did not help. It was a, and it, and it wasn't just like that in downtown Baltimore. It was like that where I lived about a, you know, 20 something minutes away from the stadium as well. You know, it was, it was cold, wet, and it was miserable. The weather was absolutely atrocious. A tri- now is now it's just it's freezing cold. You know, at the time I'm recording this episode, it's night. It's 19 degrees outside, but uh, 
but you know it was it was cold, wet, and miserable on Sunday. On top of the fact that both offenses, Steelers' offense has been inept all season long, outside of a couple outlier games, uh, and outside of a couple of uh, solo phenomenal performances. Najee Harris against Cleveland back in Week 17, uh, to give you a perfect example. But the Ravens, who had no uh, who had no Lamar Jackson in the game. Uh, and we later revealed that it wasn't just that it wasn't just a uh, an ankle sprain that was keeping him sidelined. It was a it was an a it was a bone bruise with his ankle, which uh, which kept him sidelined essentially for the rest of the 2021 regular season. Yeah, Tyler Huntley, you know, complete 180 performance from how he did in the Packer game a few weeks ago. I can tell you that right now. Uh, but you have Tyler Huntley playing for the Ravens, a washed washed up and boring, bland, lethargic Pittsburgh Steelers team on the other side. You know, st- that that combination between between the two of them is the only recipe that can make a week that can make a regular season finale matchup between the Steelers and the Ravens with playoff implications on the line for both teams. The only way you can you can make it boring and make it a snooze fest until the fourth quarter until the fourth quarter came around. Uh, and you and you saw that Indianapolis had lost to Jacksonville, which I get to in the next upcoming soon episode. But you know the thing that I got a gripe with, uh, I do. You know what? I do Pittsburgh first. Do Pittsburgh first, and then give me my uh, my couple my uh, two cents on the Ravens. With Pittsburgh, it was you know Ben Roethlisberger played like crap. Play like crap. Had a heroic, heroic, heroic. Fourth quarter and overtime. Fourth quarter, fourth quarter and overtime. We we saw vintage Ben Roethlisberger keeping drives alive, making plays, keep keeping the play alive, moving, f- making, finding his open receivers, finding wide receiver, making the tough throws near the sideline, tough throws middle of the field, extending drives, converting on third and long. What you saw, especially during that late, you know, during the uh, in the final closing minutes of the fourth quarter and in the overtime, what we saw was vintage Ben Roethlisberger. For the first three quarters of that game, Ben Roethlisberger was atrocious. Ben Roethlisberger was abysmal. Ben Roethlisberger looked like he needed to retire at halftime. Ben Roethlisberger was complete and utter garbage for the first three quarters of that football game. Fourth quarter overtime came. Ben Roethlisberger turned turned you know turned back the clock. You know went went into went into uh, vintage mode, Hall of Famer mode, and 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 made plays and made throws I haven't seen him make honestly in a in a in a in a decent little in a, in a decent little while. Had a phenomenal and a heroic fourth quarter in overtime. Ravens couldn't get off the field. I give you the plays here in a minute. Uh, the Ravens cannot get off the field. Um, the Ravens cannot get off the field on uh they face a third and seven and a third and they faced a third and seven and a third and nine in the overtime period. Third and seven went five eighteen to go in in the overtime. Pittsburgh had the ball thrown thirty one yard line. They could not get off the field on third and they could not get off the field on uh on on third and seven. 
Roethlisberger found found uh, found Fryer Fryer Muth, excuse me, to keep the drive alive to uh, to get the ball to Pittsburgh's 45 yard line. Then they faced the third and nine with the ball at their own 46, and Roethlisberger found Deontay Johnson who moved the ball past midfield for 11 yards to Baltimore's 43 yard line. Baltimore faced a third and seven, a third and nine in the overtime period. Could not get off the field on both occasions. Not to mention if you not to mention you go back uh, not to mention if you go back to Pittsburgh's touchdown drive which gave them the lead at 13-10 with uh, with a little with you know in the you know midway through uh, up until that drive uh, started with 740 excuse me 806 in the fourth quarter and uh, it didn't end until about 254 in the fourth took five minutes 13 seconds off the clock you want to go back to Pittsburgh's uh, one and only touchdown drive of the ball game you know the Baltimore cannot get off the field on the Baltimore cannot get off the field on uh, on on third and nine and this was after Leglue uh, got called for a false start penalty which backed up Pittsburgh five yards from the from Baltimore's 34 yard line to the 39 yard line facing a third nine ball at Baltimore's 39 yard line couldn't get off couldn't get off the field Roethlisberger uh gets uh Gets the ball off. Gets the ball off to. Uh, gets the ball off to Fryermuth, or excuse me, finds Ray Ray McLeod over the middle of the field for a twenty-yard gain to move the ball to into into Baltimore territory inside the red zone at the nineteen-yard line. Then they get. Then you know they have an incomplete pass to Fryermuth on first and ten, and then Najee Harris gets a mere four yards on the second and ten at Baltimore's nineteen-yard line. It's a third and six. At at Baltimore's 15-yard line, Pittsburgh up a field goal. Ravens defense once again couldn't get off the field on third on on a third and medium, third and long situation. What happens? Roethlisberger finds Fryermuth, uh, f- finds Fryermuth for 11-yard completion to drive the ball inside the Baltimore five-yard line to set up Pittsburgh with a first and goal at Baltimore's four-yard line. So you have so so you have a third you have a third and nine that was a that was a gift of all time because LeGlue got called for a false start a third and nine with 557 to go in the fourth quarter a third and six with 428 to go in the in the fourth quarter then you go to the overtime period on uh, on Pittsburgh's lone possession the overtime period Baltimore faced a third and nine at, at Pittsburgh's 46 with 337 to go in the overtime period and they faced a third and eight with the ball in in Baltimore's territory at Baltimore's 41 yard line with 227 going the OT and the Ravens could not get I mean it doesn't matter I mean they did held them on a on that third and eight to kick the field goal but but a third but the third and nine in the overtime period and the third and nine and the third excuse me the third and nine with 557 to go in the fourth quarter uh with 57 to go in the fourth quarter Third and six or four twenty-eight to go in the fourth quarter that Baltimore couldn't get off the field. And they couldn't get off the field on third and nine. Uh, and they allowed Deontay Johnson to catch a short pass on a crossing pattern for good for eleven yards to keep the drive alive and to move the ball into Baltimore territory with uh, under three minutes to go excuse me, with under three thirty to go in the overtime. Three instances, three occasions, third and long Pittsburgh faced 
offense was inept for three quarters, Baltimore could not get off the field. And drives that they had to have and, and, and drives that their defense had to make a stop in order to keep Baltimore in the game. But, uh, the, but uh, excuse me, if Pittsburgh does not convert that, does not convert that third nine, they punt the, they punt the ball back. But they punt the ball back. Game still tied at 13. Baltimore has an opportunity to respond. You go back to the four in those two third down plays in the fourth quarter. Third nine. Baltimore gets a stop at 5:57. They go in the fourth quarter. They uh, 5:57 to go in the fourth quarter. Baltimore is up 10-6. They get the ball back. Give the ball off to uh, to their running to their running back and. Give the ball off to Latavius Murray, who had a phenomenal game on Sunday. Have him work the clock. Have Pittsburgh use the timeouts. Ravens win the game. Ravens win the game 10-6 in a, in a, in a slugfest. And the Ravens wait and see if, uh, if the chips fall where they, uh, where they may as far as them qualifying for a playoff spot. But instead, Ravens defense cannot get off the field on those three separate occasions, twice late in the fourth quarter, once in the overtime, and ended up costing them uh, and ended up costing them the game and kind of sort of cost them a playoff spot. What also cost them a playoff spot now transitioning to the Ravens side of things is why in the world did it take, uh, did it take Greg Roman, who has been scrutinized aplenty all season long, all season long essentially from November onward, especially by the Ravens fans on Twitter. Why in the and in the and in the Baltimore and in the Baltimore Sun, which I read, uh, which I read after the game on Monday. Why in the world it took uh, it took Greg Roman so long to 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 give Latavius Murray more carries going up against one of the league's worst rushing defenses in all of football? Not just in the A, not just within the division, not just within the AFC, but in all of football. Pittsburgh, one of the worst run defenses in the sport. And Greg Roman took way, 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 way too long to uh, to work the running game, or excuse me, to uh, you know to give it to uh, to kickstart the running game and have Latavius Murray carry the ball carry the ball more times than he should have. Only carried the ball. He did a phenomenal job. 150 yards on the ground, one touchdown, the 46-yard run, uh, and uh, and he, but he only carried the ball 16 times. Should have carried the ball twenty-five to thirty times because because Tyler Huntley was not bad. He was abysmal. Got sacked three times, threw two interceptions, sixteen of thirty-one completion-wise, threw a buck forty-one through the air. One interception that he had was which which was a completely bonehead, asinine, mind-numbing interception that he threw. Where was it? Let me see if I can find it. Uh, that he threw, uh, let me see if I can drag it down. That he threw to, uh, that he threw to, um, it was in the red zone, the pass that was intended for, uh, Mark, for, uh, Mark Andrews. Where was that? Yeah, it was in, it was, and this is in, this is late in the first quarter, mind you. The bonehead ass interception that he threw with four minutes to go in the first quarter. He has the ball. No, that wasn't it. That was the first one. I'm trying to get the, uh, trying to find the second one. 
second one that he threw. That was the first one, not the second one. The second one that he threw, which was an inter- which was an interception, uh, which was an interception when they had the ball at Pittsburgh's 11 yard line inside the red zone that had absolutely zero chance of being completed with Mark Andrews being double teamed with a third defender in the vicinity of where Mark Andrews was in the end zone forces a pass that has no chance of being completed in the middle of the end zone pass intended for Mark Andrews that got intercepted by Cortland Sutton that uh, that ended up uh, stalling out and, and ending a Ravens offensive drive that had they put the ball in the end zone, the Baltimore would have extended their lead by a touchdown at minimum to make it 13-6 or what the, or would have put themselves out in front by 11 going up going up seven going up 17-6. Instead, Hulling throws the ass nine interception, drive stalls out. Pittsburgh gets the, Pittsburgh gets the ball back now they do nothing with it because they ended up because they ended up punting but again that was a drive where when offense and scoring came at a premium for the Ravens especially in the first in the first half of that game where Tyler Huntley cannot make that mistake he just can't yeah, especially when, especially whenever, whenever it's same thing with the Packer game. When everybody in in America watching and everybody in the building knows that that Mark Andrews is your best is your best wide receiver target. He's the best player on the field inside the red zone. Everybody and their mama know that Mark that if it's a pass play, Mark Andrews is getting the ball. Which also reflects on Greg Roman of why in the world the Ravens are even throwing the football in the red zone to begin with in the first place. But that's neither here nor there. What, what another thing I'm also interested in from a Raven perspective, for all you people that are out there sitting on your high horse, praising Harbaugh and saying, "How dare you!" to you know to the people like yours truly that were that were questioning and uh, and and were mo- and were just blown out of our gourd for uh, for Harbaugh's decision to go forward on fourth down and the two point conversions in the Brown in, in the Browns game. In the in the second Browns game and in the Packer game, what do you have to say now? Ravens Ravens were eight and three, number one seed in the AFC. Proceeded to lose six in a row and collapsed. And if John Harbaugh does not decide to go for two with eight fifty six to go in the fourth quarter in the Cleveland game, they kick an extra point and it's twenty four sixteen instead of twenty four seventeen. Not trying, you know, you know, to kick your extra point. Kick your extra point. You're down eight, so you stop Cleveland. You go down the field. You score a touchdown. You go for two to tie the game up instead of instead of doing it a drive earlier where it's, where it's unnecessary, ill-timed, and you're chasing points. What happens? They go for the two-point conversion. Ravens don't get it. Down by nine. You know how that story ended. And then how about Harbaugh in the Packer game when they did a phenomenal job driving down the field, getting the ball to Green Bay's uh, four-yard line? How about not going? How about not going for it on fourth and goal when you have Justin Tucker as your kicker? Just take your freaking points. Take your points. Don't leave any points on the board. Don't go point chasing. Get on the board. Help the morale. Boost the morale of your team after you took Green Bay's defense to task on that opening drive and take what they give you. Fourth and goal at the four-yard line. I understand you're playing Rodgers and Green Bay. You take your points. You take your points. You strike first. You take your points. 
Or if or if Harbaugh doesn't decide to leave Huntley in the offense on the field on a fourth and five when they had the ball at their own 29-yard line, again, with a huge chunk of time left in the fourth quarter, 12-0-1 to go in the fourth quarter, thereabouts down 28-17. Fourth and five inside their own 30-yard line. Punt the football. Pin, pin Green Bay back deep and let your defense go out there and work. That drove me crazy as well. And then the coup de gras, and then the coup de gras that, was, that was the second fatal decision that Harbaugh has made within the last six weeks or so. Again, we discussed it at Adam Finitum back in uh, back in December last month. The decision to go for two, 31-30, when it isn't the final play of the game. Pittsburgh was the final play of the game, and their secondary was 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 running on fumes because they had lost Marlon Humphrey earlier in that quarter. 42 seconds left. Green Bay has a timeout. Aaron Rodgers on the sideline. Even if you get the two-point conversion to go up 32-31, game's not over. Rodgers got 40, 42 seconds left, a timeout in his back pocket, and, his, and he and his offense is going to go out there on their next offensive drive, whether it's at the 20-yard line, the 30-yard the line, the 34-yard line, or the 37-yard line. They're, go, they're going to go out there with a, with a little extra added sense of urgency to go down there and put Mason Crosby in field goal range so they can kick a field goal and steal the game by the final by the final score of 34-32 cuz because because even if the Ravens get the two point conversion instead of kicking for the extra point even if they convert in that on that in that situation Rodgers and the Packers have an added you know are are motivated more and, and there's a little bit, you know, kick in the keister, and there's a little bit more of an added incentive for them to march down the field to try to put Mason Crosby in a position. Again, they don't need a touchdown to win the game, only a field goal. Ravens get a two-point conversion, they're down by one. Not down by eight, not down by seven, not down by six, not down by five, not down by four, they're down by one. 32-31 if the Ravens get the two-point conversion. So if anything, it gives Rodgers and the Packers extra and added motivation for them to not fought around, get the ball back after the after the uh, ensuing kickoff, and get Mason Crosby in field goal range to, to kick a game-winning field goal and win the game. You kick a field, you kick the extra point, you tie the game up at 31 apiece. Off your defense played phenomenal in the fourth quarter. Uh, kept the Packers' offense in check for the majority of the second half. Kept them in check. To in large part in the fourth quarter, had I had, had all that momentum, you were down 31-17 in the second half. You go, it's tied 31 apiece. Again, Rogers still, you know, give or take, Rogers still has 31 seconds left, or excuse me, 42 seconds left to go down the field and kick, go down the field and kick a field goal. But isn't, but he isn't going to be, but unless the play is there on the first two opening snaps of that possession, odds are Rogers and the Packers are going to sit on it, know that they have overtime in the back pocket, play for the overtime and go for the coin flip. Instead, Harbaugh decides to go for two. They don't get it. Awful, and I brought and I referenced it in the monologue breaking down the breaking down Alabama decision to go for two uh, in the championship game. They decided to go for two. Everyone in America knows that Mark Andrews getting the football. Play breaks down. Play's not there. Reigns lose the game 31 30. If the Packer game or the Brown game goes differently, Ravens are probably in the playoffs. 
albeit they wouldn't have the tiebreaker over uh, they albeit they wouldn't have the tiebreaker over the Raiders because they lost to them week one, but they would have had the tiebreaker over the Chargers who they blew out, the Colts who they who they had that who that who they had that phenomenal Monday night comeback against back in October. Any of those plays go differently or Harbaugh makes the right decision on any of those occasions, Ravens are, are most likely probably in the playoffs. And this uh, and this six-game collapse, this six-game losing streak does not occur. I wonder if everybody else, you know, the Torrey Smiths, the Kimberly Martins, everybody, the Rick Ritters of the world that were saying how, you know, that basically made it seem like it was, you were, it, you were committing football blasphemy for questioning Harbaugh's decision to go for two at the end of the Packer game. Wonder how they feel now. I said it then. I said it then. I'll say it again. Wonder if you guys have that same energy because those, because those decisions in the Brown game and in the Packer game alone can make the argument those decisions cost you the playoffs. And, 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 and ruined and cost you your season. On top of the fact that the Ravens defense on three occasions, twice late in the fourth quarter, once in the overtime, could not get off the field on third and long. In a Ravens season, on top of them being injured to hell and back, Lamar with the bone bruise in his ankle, no J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards to begin the season, to you know, to before the season even started back in September, Humphrey gets injured. Marcus Peters out for the year. I mean, you you go down the list. On top of all that, and Harbaugh's ineptitude and self-inflicted, piss poor coaching, ill-timed coaching decisions. Ravens are eight and nine, and out of the postseason. First place in the AFC at eight and three. Lost six in a row and collapsed. Now, they'll be better for it. They'll be better next year. Fully healthy, ran to go, looking to get revenge on Pittsburgh for sweeping them, looking to get revenge for the Bengal on the you know, against the Bengals who, who who humiliated them twice. So they'll be hungry and they'll be a live dog not just an A not just an AFC North, but an AFC uh, in 2022, this upcoming fall. But despite everything the Ravens had gone through this season, it still was there for them to make the playoffs. And and they, and they couldn't deliver the goods. First, first losing season since 2015 for John Harbaugh as head coach. Been a head coach of the Ravens since 08. This is just his second losing season as the Ravens head coach. And it is also the first time since 2017. Of course, that was the famous, you know, 4th and 12 New Year's Eve, Andy Dalton to Tyler Boyd to knock the Ravens out of the playoffs. First time since 2017 where the Ravens also heading into, especially heading into the final weekend of the regular season, where the Ravens missed the postseason. Take a break. Get to some other things as far as Week 18 is concerned in the NFL. Back in a flash.
Welcome back to the Yamatel Like a TIS podcast. Got a couple things to say as far as that Monday night, that quote unquote Monday night football Saturday double letters. Listen, I understand that that it was underneath the the quote unquote branding of mon- of uh, of Monday night football. Those uh, those two matchups that occurred on Saturday, but I mean. I don't know. Maybe it's just me just being too literal and being too critical. But I mean, you, you call it you call it Monday Night Football yet it's second place on a Saturday. I mean, I, I look. I understand that it's that it's like under the you know ESP, ESPN's live NFL uh, live NFL broadcast productions are under the umbrella of of you know them having the Monday Night Football of them having the Monday Night Football rights broadcasting rights but i mean you know it's just you're calling it monday night football doubleheader saturday i mean really guys i mean no it's it's uh it's 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 monday i and i understand you know with sunday night football it's the same thing you know they call it sunday night football thanksgiving night i get that we all know you know thanksgiving is on a thursday not a sunday and it's underneath that umbrella but and I bring that up because of how ESPN tried to spin, you know, the ratings for the games that they had. That the Dallas Eagle game drew 20, 20. 20.3 million viewers across ESPN and ABC. Uh, it's the third most watched game since ESPN has acquired the Monday Night Football rights. Uh, and in the and the Denver Kansas City game drew 19.1 million viewers. That was a game that Fowler and Herb Street did. Do a phenomenal job doing NFL football, by the way. Um, you know, I I would I would not say boo. now they do a good job with the college, but I w- I would not say boo if they replace uh, Herb Street or excuse me replace the Levy Greasy and Riddick, who are not my favorite broadcasting team in the history of. Uh, you know, in in all of uh, in all of sports television, but I would I would not say I would not say boot I would not say boot to Fowler and Herb Street. You know, somewhere down the line, getting the uh, you know getting a Monday night you know becoming the uh, Monday night guys would 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 not would not be uh, would not be opposed to that. Laura Rutledge does a phenomenal job. Host of uh, NFL Live did a phenomenal job with the sidelines for uh, for that game. Uh, and I and I said it last September that uh, that those two, when Maria Taylor was an ESPN employee, how she did a phenomenal job, uh, you know, with because uh, they did the um, the Steeler Giant game week one of the 2020 season, uh, and how they and how they did a phenomenal job last season as well. Um, and that game and the Chief Bronco game drew 19.1 million viewers. The problem that I have is that how ESPN spun it as like the biggest and the most watched games in the Monday Night Football, you know, in the in the Monday Night Football era. Well, here's the caveat, guys. Those games were although it was underneath the umbrella of Monday Night Football because you guys have the rights. With the National Football League, the broadcast Monday Night Football, it was not a Monday Night Football game. The Bronco Chief game was played at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Saturday. Not 8.15 on a Monday night. 4.30 on a Saturday afternoon. Which I was not able to see a large chunk of the game because I had to work. 
19.1 million viewers Saturday afternoon. So for ESPN to sit up and say, well, it's the fifth most watched game since ESPN has had Monday football in 06, that, that, that's, that's inaccurate and that's disingenuous. Because the game was not played in the traditional 8.15, 8.30, 8.45 Monday night football window you know, that we are traditionally used to you know, 16, 17 Monday nights out of the year. That, 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 that wasn't the case. Game was played on a Saturday afternoon, so when you see ESPN press room sit up here and say, "Hey, it was the most wa- it was the most watched AFC versus AFC matchup in the history of Monday Night Football since it's been on ESPN in 06. you have that's an you put an asterisk next to it. Take that with a grain of salt, one ear and out the other, because it's disingenuous. Also, take the fact that it's disingenuous that it's the fifth most watched game in ESPN's Monday Night Foot in ESPN's Monday Night Football era since 06. Again, disingenuous. The game took place at 4:30 afternoon on the East Coast, 3:30 in the afternoon Kansas City time, and 2:30 in the afternoon uh, or thereabouts Denver time on a Saturday, not a Monday night. Which which they they call it Monday Night Football for a reason. It wasn't played at night. It was at least the uh, Chief Bronco game wasn't. It was played in the afternoon on a Saturday, not on Monday night. So that so that uh, the, the writing isn't disingenuous, but the historical significance and the impressiveness that ESPN is trying to tie it with, as far as comparing comparing and contrasting with their ratings in the past, don't don't buy it. It's it, it, they're, it's it's misleading. Furthermore. The, the, the Cowboy-Eagle game, which I got something to say about in a minute within the game itself. But 20.3 million viewers. Monday Night Football's most watched game since, 2000, since, uh, since 2009. Third most watched game in the history of the Monday Night Football era. Again, disingenuous because it wasn't a Monday Night Football game. It was a Saturday night football game, not a Monday night football game. And third most watched game of Monday football era. No, it's the third most watched NFL broadcast since since ESPN got the Monday football rights in 06. That way, okay. The third the third most watched the most watched Monday night football game in the history. You know, since it's been on ESPN in 06 was Minnesota at Green Bay. Brett Favre's return. You know, going to Green Bay October of 09. New England at New England at New Orleans, November thirtieth of '09, drew twenty one point four million people. The Minnesota Green Bay game twenty one point eight. Dallas Dallas Philadelphia, you put an asterisk next to it. It drew. To, it's the third most watched quote unquote Monday Night Football game since '06 when it came, when it was on ESPN. That's just not true. Not true. It was played on a Saturday night, not a Monday night. That that those two games are in a category all to themselves. Because I won a Monday night game. That game was played on a Saturday. For the third most watched true Monday night football game since ESPN has had the rights in 06 is New Orleans is, is the Saints and the Falcons that drew 19.1 December 27th of 2010. The fourth most wa- the the fourth most watched after that. Washington at Dallas, October 27, 2014, that drew 18.8 million. And Detroit at Dallas, 
uh, the day after Christmas 2016, uh, and Philadelphia, Dallas, September 15th of 08, that on, you know, so on and so forth. The, the two games that took place on Saturday are in a company and in a conversation all to themselves because those games were played on Saturday, not Monday nights. So, answer answer if it tries to twist it, don't buy it because 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 it's di- because it's disingenuous. Those games were played on a Saturday afternoon or on a Saturday night, not on a Monday night, first day, you know, night of the of the first day of the new work week after a full Sunday of NFL football, Monday night, first day of the work week, second day of the 7-day week, 8:15 820, 830, 845 kickoff on ESPN. Where, you know, you're a football fan, you wake up, it's Monday, and the first question is, what's the game tonight? Not Saturday afternoon, Monday night football, Saturday doubleheader nonsense. That game was at four, that game was played middle of the afternoon in the local Denver and Kansas City markets. 4.30 on the East Coast on a Saturday. That ain't Monday Night Football. That's Saturday afternoon football that we're playing because the college football regular season slash bowl games outside of the national championship game that's being played on Monday night is over, and we're taking advantage of the fact that there's no football games on Saturday because the college season for the most part is over. That's why. So disingenuous, which uh, which I uh, which caught my attention and and I had and I had to call out on because it's not a Monday game. Games were played on a Saturday. Saturday nobody's working. Different dynamic. More people are available to get to a TV. They don't have to worry about going to bed early that Monday because they got to go up and get up and go to work, go to school. You know, on Tuesday morning, different different dynamic. Different dynamic, different set of circumstances, but you knew and ju- but the ratings amongst themselves, you knew they were going to draw a decent amount because of, because of the fact that they had Mahomes on Mahomes and the Chiefs one game and the Dallas Cowboys who always draw big and the fact there was a rivalry game with the Eagles, the second one being the nightcap, and I told you guys last week how ESPN lucked out of getting both Eagles and uh, getting both Eagles. And cowboy games on their "quote unquote" Monday night football schedule, and but the uh, and Vic fans did a did a stupid decision. Uh, I understand that the uh, and I understand that uh, that the that the that the Broncos have lost many a games fumbling the ball inside the opponent's red zone, and I understand that they necessarily uh, that they necessarily you know didn't lose games to to inferior competition. But if you're Vic Fangio, I mean, what are you doing kicking the field goal in that situation? You're down seven, you know, late fourth quarter. Did you learn? Did you did you watch and did you learn anything from the from the Bengals Chiefs game the week before? When you play the Chiefs, you have them on the ropes, have an opportunity to win late in the fourth quarter, tight game, close game, and you're at home as an added bonus. You put the stake through them. You you take some chances against them that you wouldn't. Against you know against uh, against the Houston Texans or the Jacksonville Jaguars, you gotta take some risks. What are you doing kicking the field goal? Take the risk, go for the gusto. 
I understand it's a fourth and long, but go for the gusto, see if we can put the ball in the end zone. The offense and Drew Locke play, pl- played very, very well in the game. Your, your defense stunk. Go out there, score a touchdown, and tie the game up. Tie the game up. Where, you know, Kansas City goes down the field and scores, you're down by four. Go down the field and score, you're down by 11. Rather than you tie the game up, they go down the field and score, you're, you're, down, by, you're down by seven all over again. It's still a one-possession game if Kansas City goes down the field and, uh, and breaks the tie and takes the lead which I didn't understand that decision by Fangio whatsoever. That was a, and that fumble could have been more ill-timed, you know, for, uh, for Denver in the, latter st- you know, in the latter stages of that fourth quarter. Getting to the Eagles and Cowboys game, that game was a complete farce, was a complete waste of time. You know, the NFL, I understand it drew big ratings for it, but the fact that that game was on, was just you know was just the, on national TV no less was just a complete waste. The game meant nothing for both teams. Eagles basically gave the middle finger to the to the National Football League said screw you. We don't need this game. We already locked up a playoff spot. Obviously we didn't win our division, so we don't have to worry about seeding to get an extra home game or getting a first round bye. I understand it's the Cowboys. I understand it's the rivalry game. I understand it's on ABC, ESPN. But screw you. We're, we're we are resting our guys. For you know, for the you know, for the, it ended up being the Bucks who they ended up getting in the first round. Screw you, we rest our guys. Cowboys essentially went up against went up against a, uh, a Philadelphia Eagles uh, ragtag bunch of backups, second and third stringers, guys off the freaking practice squad. So if anybody went out went out there and Lewis Riddick and Greasy and all of them in the booth drove me crazy. Making Dak Prescott out to be Roger Staubach because he threw five touchdown passes against the Eagles' backups. I mean, give in Week 18 of the season. I mean, give me a freaking break. I mean, guys, he he went up against a bunch of backups for crying out loud. Could you take it easy, please, before you put him in the Hall of Fame and essentially compare him to Roger Staubach for crying out loud? I mean, seriously, five touchdown passes against the Philadelphia Eagles backups ain't exactly all that impressive and and eyebrow-raising and, ooh, wow, look at this. I mean, please, please. But again, because Dak Prescott has a star on his helmet, that, you know, that, you, you get what you get, as my sister used to say when she, was, uh, in, when she was in kindergarten. You get what you get and you don't get upset. Well, you get what you get and I'm going to get upset about it, like it or not, but... I mean, again, when, when they went up against their backups for crying out loud, not their first stringers. I understand that 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 the uh, Cowboys played Dallas very, you know, very well back in October when it mattered down in Jerry World. But take it easy, okay? The game meant nothing for Dallas and meant nothing for uh, for Philadelphia. And you're gonna make a big deal about Dak Prescott throwing five touchdown passes in a meaningless game against a bunch of backups. I mean, really. And for everybody out there saying, you know, what's the difference between what Dak did on Saturday night and what Joe Burrow did against the against the Ravens in week eight in week sixteen, I tell you the difference. I tell you the difference. For one, both teams needed the game. Bengals in week eight and week sixteen, Ravens in week sixteen, both equally needed the game. They needed that game 
to see who's going to take control of the AFC North and who was and who were going to put themselves in the best situ- uh, in the in the best position heading into the final two weeks of the regular season to win the division and get a home game. So although the Ravens, the Ravens were injured to hell and back, it wasn't like the Ravens in the same breath didn't have anything to play for because they did. Control of the AFC North was on the line for both teams. I understand that the Bengals were the better team on paper, more healthy, more more star power, more firepower than, than the than the Lamar Jacksonless Ravens did. But it does. But but and and it showed. And, and the Bengals went out there and showed you that 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 they weren't playing around. That they that they knew that the Bengals needed the game because they went out there and and they kicked their tail in the second half and dropped forty one points on them, blew and blew them out by twenty. Bengals knew how important how important it was for them to for them to win that game, and all the more important because because the Ravens went out there the first few offensive possessions and put the ball in the end zone, and then and you were saying to yourself, oh holy crap, this might be a game through the fourth through the first quarter. So don't compare it. Both teams needed the game, especially Baltimore more more than anything. Baltimore needed the game. Both teams did to to put them to see who's going to take control of the division. That's the first thing. Second thing is the Eagles put out their practice squad guys, their second and third string guys out there on the field. Nick Sirianni did that on purpose. Nick Sirianni chose to do that. Nick Sirianni knew that it wasn't worth it getting his starters hurt and banged up and tired and worn out during a meaningless football game, albeit a division rival, but a meaningless football game in a final week of the regular season when they were where they don't have a home game and they don't have a bye week. Why risk it? Why risk it? He chose not to play his guys by choice. Ravens, on the other hand, had no choice. They had no choice. You you saw how how many of their of their star players, their best players on the roster, highest paid players on the roster were on IR. You've seen it. Ravens had no choice but to go out there and throw out the players that they had that they had that they had out there on the field on the on the twenty sixth. They had no choice. Eagles had a choice. A little different. And again, Bengals and Ravens had something to play for in that Week 16 game. Control of the division was on the line. Ravens trying to avoid being swept, you know, by by Cincinnati, and can you know, and Bengals trying to sweep uh, the Ravens for the first time in a, in a good little bit. And control of the AFC North heading into the final two weeks of the regular season were on the line. There was not a damn thing on the line between Dallas and Philadelphia on Saturday night. Nothing. Had had playoff spots locked up. Dallas already won the division. Eagles took care of business, locking up a playoff spot again with their road win against uh, Washington the week before. The game meant nothing for, for both teams. And again, Washington put their backups up there by choice. Harbaugh and the Ravens didn't have a choice. Unless they wanted to forfeit the game. They had no choice. Their players were injured to hell and back. 
apples and oranges. Don't compare Burrow embarrassing the Ravens defense like he did in week 16 to what Dak did on Sunday. Totally different. Totally different sets of circumstances, and the game meant something for both teams. Didn't mean anything for Dallas or Philadelphia on Saturday night. And let's say for the sake of conversation, Dak Prescott gets hurt, you know, while he's trying to throw for the five touchdown passes. Say he gets hurt. Then 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 what? Then then what are you saying? Then what are you screaming and yelling about? Ponder that. Ponder that. And I, and I don't know about you, but this is how I feel about it. Monday night, and I don't know whether it was the fact that I had to work that day or not. Not in favor of the whole Monday night, quote unquote, Monday night football Saturday doubleheader shtick. I prefer the two. I prefer the two games, one at seven o'clock, one at ten o'clock. I prefer the back to back, the the doubleheader, the seven and the ten, week one in September. I prefer that over the two games, week eighteen. And you see, and 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 and, and that was the reason why. That was the re- that was the reason why. Game meant nothing for Dallas and, and went and meant nothing for Dallas and the Eagles. Eagles said, "I know it's a rivalry game. I know it's on television. Screw you, NFL." And they had every right to do it. They don't owe the NFL or ESPN anything. Screw you. We're resting our guys for next week. Meaningless game. Last ga- last game. Last week of the regular season. We're resting our guys. Week one. Week one doubleheader, first game of the new season, that ain't happening. That ain't happening. That ain't happening. And, and, and if you want strong ratings, put Mahomes and put Dallas week one every week. But get, get off the week 18 Saturday doubleheader nonsense and, and go back to the week one doubleheader, which I love. 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 First game. First game starts. Er, first game starts earlier, ends earlier, and if the second game is decent, you can see. A, is if you live on the East Coast, you see a good decent amount until laugh time. Or if you're a degenerate, have nothing to do on Tuesday, and you live in the East Coast, you can sacrifice sleep and stay up till one o'clock in the morning to see the second game finish. But that's just me. Take a break. Joe Judge, bag it. I'll tell you why right after this. You know, low-key, I had never heard of her prior to last year, but Dua Lipa, low-key, just been releasing some flat-out, straight-out bangers over the last 
two years or so. I mean, levitating it, it is is just since levitating sensational. Don't start now is a funky, a funky groovy ass song. I mean, shout out, the lyrics are catchy, a phenomenal voice. I mean, the the catchy chorus. I mean, I mean, this is just. I mean, listen to this. I mean, that, 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 Christopher Mad Dog Russo, that is music. None, none of that Laurel Canyon garbage. Dua Lipa, next big thing. Heard about it. Ch- check her out if you have listened to her music already. You know, one of my, up there is one of my, starting to become one of my new favorite artists in music. Dua Lipa. Levitating and Don't Start Now are our five-star Grammy Award-winning caliber songs, in my uh, humble and honest opinion. But anyway, getting back to the National Football League County Amatelikitarius podcast, and it was breaking news that took place on Tuesday, and it, it made me happy, and thank the good Lord Jesus Christ that it happened. Bag it, Joe Judge. Bag it. Get, don't get out of here. Goodbye, sayonara, hasta la vista. Don't don't let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Thank the good Lord. John Mara and the New York Giants woke up, came to their senses, and fired this clown. He should have been fired after the game Sunday. He should have been fired on Black Monday, but he was fired nevertheless. Thank the good Lord that the New York football Giants are awake. Thank you, God, that Joe that that Joe Judge is no longer the head football coach of the New York Football Giants. Thank you, God. Thank you. And for everybody that's been asking me, well, Jai, you're you know you're a Bengals fan. Like, what, what do you care about whether or not Joe Judge Joe Judge is fired or not? I tell you why. And it goes back to when I screamed and yelled back in the summertime about him. For him to walk around. And carry himself with that fake ass, better than you, I'm tougher than you, smarter than you, more accomplished than you, arrogant, ignorant, pretentious, unbecoming, snarky, egotistical, narcissistic attitude that he had. And I'm going back to training camp where he carried himself and acted like somebody's freaking drill sergeant, barking, cussing people out obnoxiously, unnecessarily, making guys do up-downs so they either pass out of heat exhaustion or vomit, whichever one comes first, yelling and screaming at the team as, as if they're a bunch of kids and he's the head varsity coach of, the, of, the, of, a, of somebody's high school varsity football team back in 1981. I mean, when he's, again, for the 10,000th time since August, when he and his coaching career has done absolutely nothing, nothing, he's a nothing, he's a zero, he is unsuccessful, irrelevant, 
Not a factor. Not a winner. He's a zero. You're a, he's a loser. I could ki- again. I could give a damn about what he did under Saban and what he did under Belichick. Riding the coattails of Belichick's and Belichick's and Saban's success to win to win national championships and Super Bowls. I could give a rat's ass. Has nothing to do with him that Saban and Belichick running the program, not Joe Judge. I could care less about his about about him riding the coattails of them too. And the idea that he would that he was the twenty first century straight out of straight out of Philly, Nick Saban Bill Belichick hybrid. I said it back in August. I said it back in September, October, November, December. I said all those times. I've said it for what? One, two, three, four, five, damn near six months. I'll say it till I'm blue in the face. You can miss me and you can take his Mr. Fit, Mr. Philly, Mr. Tough, fake ass, tough guy attitude. He can shove it right up his ass. Care less. Miss me with that foolishness. Miss me with it. I could care less. Bottom line is, Joe, this is this is this is what you were. I, I could care less what you, what you did with Saban. I could give a damn about what you did with Belichick. Here is Joe Judge in a nutshell, and and and, and Bill Parcells, who who uh, who Joe Judge carries and carries himself as and thought of himself as. He he is a, he ain't he ain't a patch on Bill Parcells' ass. But he sure but he carried himself and acted acted like and walked around like a tyrant as if he was Joe Judge or excuse me as if he was Bill Parcells. Well, Bill Parcells had a famous line. You know what it was? Famous line he always say all the time: "You are what your record says you are." Well, Joe Judge, this is what you are: ten and twenty-three in your two seasons as New York. Football giant head coach. That's what you are. 10 and 23. And your team lost six games in a row with a combined score of 163 to 56. Averaging averaging 9.3 points in your final six games. All that is all you need to freaking know. All you need to know. Av- his team averaged 9.3 points in their final six games of the season. Last six games they lost in a row by a combined score of 163 to 56. And 10 and 23, his record in the combined two seasons. That's all you need to know about Joe Judge. That's what he is. 10 and 23, lost six in a row, offense averaged 9.3 points a game. And this is after he threw Jason Garrett under the bus and to the Wolves after the Buccaneer debacle on that Monday night. It's a good thing Joe Judge got fired. Should have happened a day sooner. Should have happened after Sunday's game. But I'll take it nevertheless. Thank God. I I am so sick of that narcissistic, arrogant, unsuccessful fool 
I, I, don't, I do not think in all my years of being a sports fan outside of my favorite team, I don't think I've ever been more happy to see, to see someone within the sports world lose their job because he deserved it. Acting like he's so high and mighty and he's so successful and everybody else isn't because he rode the coattails of Belichick and Saban. Saban, excuse me. Give me a freaking break, please. With all these empty, we're going to be aggressive. We're going to show accountability. Throws Jason Garrett under the bus and fires him as a scapegoat because his offense can't score a damn thing. We're going to be aggressive. He kneeled twice inside his own five-yard line uh, by his account trying to avoid a safety against a beleaguered, subpar Washington football team defense. All bark, no bite, piss-poor results. That, in a nutshell, is Joe Judge. All bark, all talk, no results, no action, no follow-through. As, as the old Elvis song went, matter of fact, I'll, I'll play it for you. The old Elvis song, a little less conversation, a little bit more action. All this, all, all the aggravation with Joe Judge throwing the Washington team underneath the bus and not even having the cojones, the balls, the manhood, the chutzpah, the courage to go out there and face the music to the Washington media after he sit up, sits up there and passive-aggressively uh, takes a knock and takes a shot at Washington for their sideline spat during the Cowboy game back on the 26th of December. And the 11-minute little diatribe he went on after their week, after their week 17 debacle. All, all the aggravation and all the foolishness one satisfying the Giant fan. And thank the good Lord that John Mara finally woke, finally woke the hell up. Realized, realized what the hell, realized what the hell was going on, and decided to get rid of Judge because he was taking was was taking the Giants to. Cleveland Brown, Houston Texan, Detroit Lion territory with how embarrassingly inept and incompetent, uninspiring and unentertaining that football team was. And you think about it. Giants finished the season under Judge being outscored 79 to nothing in the final two minutes of, the fir- of, of their first half of games. I mean, th- think about that for a minute. Their points, their points per game under Daniel Jones went from fifteen point one points per game, or they, or excuse me, they averaged fifteen point one points per game this season. It was at eighteen point three when Daniel Jones was the quarterback in in eleven games, and plummeted to nine point three points per game. In a six-game stretch with Mike Glennon and Jake Fromm at quarterback, and Dave Gettleman, who 
had the disgrace of all time, allowed to walk up, walk out of MetLife Stadium, see his final, see the final uh, giant game of with him at GM, have a freaking retirement ceremony instead of his ass being, th- instead of him being thrown out on his ass after the game was over, or in the middle of the freaking season, had a nice little retirement ceremony when he did nothing but urinate all over himself and make himself the biggest joke in New York City next to Mayor de Blasio. Thank God the Giants... Gettleman should have been fired, but he's out of there nevertheless. You're hearing reports that the Giants are going to they always have gone inside in the house with the GM search. You're hearing talks and reports they're going to go outside. They got rid of Joe Judge. They got rid of the problem. All they got to do now is get rid of Daniel Jones and address the quarterback situation, and things should be on the up and up for the New York football giants. And remember, they don't have a first-round pick because they gave that the way, or excuse me, they gained the first-round pick with that trade with Chicago, which is the one little... Rah, rah, thank God for you moment that Dave Gettleman had during his putrid tenure as the Giants GM. But again, with Joe Judge, like like that old Elvis song. I mean, it is, you know, a little less fight. Well, wait, what was that line? I go back to it. Uh, a little less, a little, a little more bite, a little less, a little less bark. A little less bark, Joe Judge, and more, you know, putting the ball in the end zone and winning football games. And uh, a little less fight and a little bit more spark. And although your team might, might not be actually fighting on the sidelines like Washington, there was no spark with with your football team. That's the bottom line. Elvis put it be, put put it best. One of my favorite Elvis songs is is that little less conversation. Because not only does it apply, you know, when it comes romantically and relationships between a man and a woman, but it it applies to life in general. You know, a little a little less fight, a little more spark, a, a little less bite. Oh, excuse me, a little less. A little more fight, a little less bark, a little less fight, a little more spark. If I, I'm confused, my damn self, but you you heard it. A little less fight, a little bit more spark, which the ju- which the Joe Judge Giants, which the Joe Judge Giants lacked, and a little more bite and a little less bark. Something that took place a plenty for the New York Football Giants. But thank the good Lord he's gone. Bag it, bag it, bag it, Joe Judge. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on your way out. You can take you and your little fake ass little coaching mechanisms. You can, you know what, go go coach that shit, excuse my French, to your son's local Pop Warner team. Or, 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 or you can go take that crap 
and and, and, go, and go coach some uh, some New Jersey high school football team with it. You know, some kid, some 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 kids, some cats that need a little bit of, that need a little bit uh, element of discipline and order and structure in their lives. Not a bunch of grown ass men who who are doing this for a living, getting paid to do it. That have been in the league, and have and some some players have been more successful longer than you've been. You know, coaching in the National Football League. I'm just here to tell I can see how he is, baby. That's why I'm here. Anyway, that is your show. And another episode of the I'm going to tell I can tell you is podcast in the books. If you like what you heard, new to the program, please subscribe. I'd greatly appreciate it. Share it with your friends and family if you haven't already. Follow your boy on Twitter at the J Shield. Follow the show on Instagram. Uh, at Amatelit underscore podcast on the show on Twitter at Amatel underscore it it. I will be back within the next 24 hours to give you part two of the week 18 recap. Until then, y'all stay safe. Y'all take care. See ya.